tell me about, tell me about Jesus. Tell me about Jesus of Nazareth. Tell me about this man who impacted the world more than any other person in the history of the world. My dear friends, if a coworker on your job or a classmate or a friend or a family member who is not a Christian asked you to do that for them, what would you say? How would you respond? What would be some of the first things that you that you popped out to them as you told them about this man you have devoted your entire life to? What would you tell these people about about Jesus? Would you tell them right away that that Jesus is the son of God? Would you tell them that he is the Lord and he's the Christ and he's the only source of our salvation? Would you tell them that he's a mighty man of miracles? And about how he's not just a prophet, but he is He's the prophet. He is the chief spokesman of God, as the Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews chapter 1. Would you tell them about some of the things you've been learning about him in Revelation over the past few weeks? Would you tell them that he is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world and that he is the mighty, he's the mighty lion that comes from the tribe of Judah? I certainly believe that all of those things are important things that people need to know about Jesus. But what about this right here? What about Jesus being a great divider? What about Jesus being a source of division? What about Jesus being someone who came into the world to, to sever relationships that people enjoy in their lives? I mean, do you, do you think that people also need to know that about Jesus? Someone says, well, well, Sean, I don't I don't believe that about Jesus. I mean, I mean, how could you say that about about, about Jesus? How could you say that Jesus, the savior, was someone who came into the world to to divide people and break up relationships? Well, my friends, the, the reason why I say that to you this morning the reason I say that about Jesus this morning is because we need to understand that, that Jesus said that about Jesus. Jesus says that he is a great divider of people. Jesus said this in our scripture reading this morning in, in Matthew 10, verses 34 through 39. Going back to the verses that Brother Zach read for us this morning, remember there Jesus says, he says that he didn't come into the world to bring peace but instead, he came into the world to bring a sword. He came into the world to bring conflict and division. He came into the world to bring strife, even among or even between the closest people we, we have in our lives. That's what Jesus said he came into the world to do. And, and let me tell you something, that's some radical stuff. That's some some radical teaching. That is a mission that Jesus had that, that you don't hear a lot of people talk about. Right. I mean, think about it. You don't hear a lot of folks talking about 
this, this mission that Jesus had here in the gospel. In fact, when it comes to many people, when it comes to even many religious people, hearing Jesus called a, a great divider, it sounds contradictory. It sounds confusing. It sounds conflicting. It sounds like it's something that stands in direct opposition to what Isaiah said about Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9. Will you go in your Bible with me to Isaiah chapter 9? I just want to show you something in Isaiah chapter 9. Brother Brian, in his sermon last Sunday, made reference to the fact that the book of Isaiah is is commonly referred to by many scholars as the fifth gospel. You got Matthew, you got Mark, you got Luke, you got John, and then in many people's minds, you, you got the book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah is also called by many people the fifth gospel because it tells us so much about Jesus. It tells us so much about him as the Messiah and his work as the Christ at least 700 years in advance. For example, in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse number 6, the prophet of God, Isaiah, says this about the Messiah, Jesus, at least 700 years before he was born. In Isaiah 9 and verse 6, he says, For a child, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name, the Messiah's name. Jesus' name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. I want you to notice carefully the descriptions that Isaiah gives here concerning Jesus the Christ. Notice how he says that in addition to being the greatest source for godly counsel in our lives, and in addition to referring to him as deity or the mighty God, and in addition to telling us that he would possess father-like qualities to the children of God, Isaiah also tells us that Jesus would come into the world and he would be the prince of peace. He would be the prince of peace. Question, what does Isaiah mean when he says that? I mean, well, what kind of peace? What Jesus come into the world and offer, what makes him the prince of peace? I mean, would the Lord come into the world and, and offer world peace? Would he come into the world and offer an elimination of wars and rumors of wars? Would he come into the world and make it so that there would never be any more conflicts between kingdoms of the world? Is that what Isaiah is talking about when he refers to Jesus as, as the prince of peace? No, that's not what Isaiah is talking about when he calls Jesus the Prince of Peace. Jesus would not come into the world and offer mankind world peace. Instead, he would come into the world and, and offer us a different kind of peace. Going back to what we studied last Sunday in our lesson about, about racism. Remember there in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 18, the Apostle Paul tells us that through his redemptive work at Calvary, Jesus would, would make it so that there could be peace between the nations. He would make it so that there would be peace, could be peace between the races. He would make it so that there could be peace between the Jews and the Gentiles, peace between the, the physical descendants of Abraham and those who were not because they were not given the Old Testament law of Moses, people like us Gentiles. You see, through Jesus and his gospel, Paul tells us 
that the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews and the people from the other nations could be brought together and made one in the body of Christ. They could be brought together and made a family. They could be brought together and become brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says that Jesus, through his redemptive work at Calvary, Jesus brings peace. He brings peace between the races. But not only does he bring peace between the races or the nations, another thing that makes Jesus the Prince of Peace is above anything else, Jesus makes it so that we can be at peace with God. He makes it so that men and women can be at peace with their creator. Paul also makes this point in the book of Romans. Will you go in your Bible to Romans, the fifth chapter, please? In Romans chapter 5 and in verse number 1. In Romans chapter 5 and verse number 1, here in the context, Paul is, is talking about how we are justified by faith in Christ and not by keeping the Old Testament law of Moses. And he says in Romans 5 and verse number 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what? We have peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now drop down to verse number 6. Verse 6 says, For a while we were still helpless. At the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates, God does something. He demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more have been reconciled. We shall be saved by his life. What is Paul talking about there in those verses? Well, simply put there in those verses, Paul is making our point right now. Paul is telling us, he is telling us that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He is telling us that through the death of Jesus, through the worst act of injustice in the history of the world, God's son died on a cross, peace can be made between God and men. Peace can be made between men and their creator. Paul makes that point real clear in verse 1 when he says we have peace. If we're Christians, we have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse number 8, he clarifies and emphasizes what this peace involves. He says in verse, verse number 9, it involves justification, being able to be declared not guilty before God. It involves being able to be saved from the powerful wrath of God. Verse 10, it involves reconciliation, being able to be brought back into a relationship with God. It involves being able to be saved from the horrors of hell. All of these things that Paul talks about there make up that peace that Jesus brings between men and God. And let me just ask you this morning, do you have this peace? As you sit there in the pew this morning and evaluate your own life, do you have the peace that Paul is talking about in this verse? Do you have the peace that comes to a person when they know they've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and they have a real and genuine and authentic relationship with God? Do you have that peace this morning? 
Do you have that peace as you sit in the pew this morning? My friends, if you don't have that peace, I want you to know something. I want you to know you're missing out. I want you to know that you're missing out on the greatest blessing that is announced in the Bible. You're missing out on the benefits of Jesus' death. You're missing out on the main thing he came in the world, came into the world to give you and every single person. Jesus came into the world to bring peace. To bring peace between the nations and to bring peace between men and God. That's what we find when we study the New Testament. But let's go back to our text in Matthew chapter 10. Go back to Matthew chapter 10, please, because while Isaiah and the Apostle Paul are both right when they tell us that Jesus came into the world to bring peace between men and God, I want you to notice how in this text, Jesus actually says that he did not come into the world to bring peace. Again, Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be members of his own household, people who live, and a man's own house will be his enemies. He who loves father and mother, he who loves the people who, who brought you into this world and nurtured you in your childhood, he who loves those people more than me, Jesus says, you're not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter, your little children, think about your children. Think about your babies. Think about the people you raised. He who loves those folks more than me, Jesus says, is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life, for my sake, he will find it. Now, before we're tempted, before we're tempted, to think that there is some kind of contradiction here in the Bible, I think it's important that we understand that while Jesus does use the word peace here in this text, he is using it in the same way that Isaiah does in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. He's not using it in the same way that Paul does in Ephesians 2 or the way that Paul does in Romans chapter 5. Here in this context, Jesus is not talking about peace with God or peace between the Jews and the Gentiles. Instead, here in this context, he's talking about opposition. He's talking about those who oppose him. He's talking about those who oppose his gospel. He's talking about he's talking about the world. He is saying that he didn't come into the world to die on a cross to make it so that we would be at peace with with the world. Jesus didn't come into this world to make it so we could have peace with those in our community or be friends with those who oppose the truth. I think we see this even clearer when we look at a parallel text in Luke, the 12th chapter. When you go to Luke chapter 12, I want you to park yourself, get you a Bible marker out, park yourself right there in Luke 12, because this is going to be our main text for the rest of the study. In Luke 12, we find a parallel text to what we find in Matthew 10, okay? And in Luke 12 and verse 49, listen to what Luke says here. He records the words of Jesus, and Jesus says in verse 49, I have come to cast fire 
on the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo. And how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on the earth? I tell you no, but rather division. From now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Let's spend a few minutes, let's spend a few minutes really trying to get the meat off the bone on, this, on these verses. Let's spend a few minutes breaking down what Jesus says in these verses. Let's start, let's start with verse number 49. Look at verse number 49. Notice how in verse 49, Jesus says that he came into the world to cast fire. He came into the world to cast fire on the earth. Question, what in the world does that mean? What in the world is Jesus talking about there? What does he mean when he says he came into the world to cast fire? How often do you think about that? I don't know about you, but when I read the words of Jesus there, I can't help but be, but be reminded of an interesting episode that is recorded also in the Gospel of Luke. It's found in Luke chapter 9. Go in your Bible now to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, we find a very, very interesting and intriguing episode in the ministry of Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, in verse number 51, in verse 51, the Bible says, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him. Why? Because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Notice the racism again in the New Testament. There it is. This hostility between Samaritans and Jews. We're not going to let you come through here because you're going to Jerusalem. Now verse 54 says, when his disciples, James and John, saw this, these were the sons of thunder, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to a, another village. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that text, I'm shocked. I'm just totally shocked by what I read there. I'm shocked by this request of James and John. I'm particularly shocked by the request of John. I'm shocked by what John says here because so often when we think of the Apostle John, what do we call him? We call him the Apostle of Love, don't we? We say this is the Apostle of Love. We say no one spoke more about love. No one talks more about love than John in the gospel. That's what we say about John. And while it is certainly true that John speaks a lot about love in the gospel, notice how here we learn that John also had a temper, right? He was also kind of mean. He was also kind of harsh. He was also kind of ruthless. I mean, after Jesus was rejected by these people in a Samaritan village, John wanted to burn them up. He really wanted to burn these people up. He wanted to incinerate them. He wanted to call fire from heaven to just come and totally consume these people. That's what he wanted to do. 
And he's dead serious about this, but the Lord rebukes him. The Lord says, no, we're, we're not going to do that, John. He says in verse number 46, I did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Now, if Jesus was literally, if he was literally all about casting fire on the earth, then he certainly would have done so on that occasion. He certainly would have done so to these Samaritans. He certainly would not have rebuked James and John for their request. And so Jesus is obviously not talking about literal fire there in Luke chapter 12. But let's go back to that text again and let's look at verse number 50. We look at verse number 50 now. Because after Jesus says he came to cast fire on the earth in verse 50, he says, but I have a baptism. I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Now, if you remember, and I, I can understand if you don't, it's been a couple of weeks, you've slept since then, I, I get it. But if you remember, a couple of weeks ago, I, I preached a sermon on baptism. I preached a sermon about the one baptism, the one baptism of Ephesians 4 and verse 4. We made the point that in addition to the baptism that is authorized today, baptism in water for the forgiveness of sins, there are many other kinds of baptisms that are found in the Bible. Remember we made that, that point. There's the Holy Spirit baptism. There is the baptism of John. There's the baptism of judgment, the baptism of fire. There's the baptism of Jesus that was performed in the Jordan River. We made the point that there are many different baptisms that are found in our Bibles. In fact, there's so many different baptisms that we didn't even have time to include them all in that sermon. Notice how in addition to those baptisms we talked about in that sermon, there's another baptism mentioned here in the gospel, and it is the baptism that Jesus would have to undergo, undergo at the cross. It was the baptism of suffering. It was the baptism of persecution, the baptism of pain and agony that he would have to experience so that we could be at peace with God. You see, here Jesus is talking about baptism again. And here the Lord is not using it to refer to immersion in water. Instead, he's using the word figuratively to talk about suffering. He's talking about suffering. He's talking about the pain, the agony that he would have to experience so that we could be reconciled unto God. Jesus says that he was going to have to experience a baptism of suffering. In fact, it is interesting. It is interesting to me how when you read the Lord's words in Matthew chapter 20, verses 22 through 23, there you see that after James and John, here they go again, the sons of thunder, after their mother comes to Jesus and requests that they both be given exalted positions in the kingdom of God, Jesus told their mother and he also told them that they also were going to experience this baptism. He told James and John that they also were going to experience the baptism of suffering. And when we read our New Testament very carefully, we see that's exactly what happened. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says there that King Herod, the wicked King Herod, Killed, he murdered the apostle James. James is the first apostle to be murdered for the cause. And what are we looking at in Revelation right now? 
Is not Revelation written by the Apostle John while he was exiled in Patmos for preaching the word of God? James and John certainly experienced what Jesus said they would. They were baptized with the baptism of suffering. They suffered for the cause of the gospel. But the question is, how does all this connect to our text back in Luke 12? Going back to Luke chapter 12, when we consider all of this, what is the Lord saying? What is the Lord saying in the context of that of that of, of those verses? Well, please listen very carefully, because I really don't want you to miss this. It is my understanding, brothers and sisters, that when you study the context of these verses that we're considering this morning, Jesus is really talking about one important thing, and that is the impact of his work. That is the impact of his work at Calvary, the impact of his gospel, the impact of a person deciding to follow his gospel and truly make him the Lord of your life. You see, there in those verses, the Lord is saying that he did not come into this world to make it so that everybody would like us and want to be our friends. He didn't come into this world to make it so that people of the world would put us on a pedestal. He didn't come into this world so that everybody would still want to maintain strong relationships with us after we become Christians. Instead, Jesus said he came into the world to cast some fire. He came into this world to cause division and shake things up. He came into this world to challenge people to truly put him first in their lives. That's what the Lord is talking about there in those verses. That's what the Lord is talking about when he mentions fire there. When Jesus talks about casting fire on the earth again, he's not talking about literal fire. He's not talking about the kind of fire that James and John were talking about in Luke chapter 9. He's not even talking about the fires of hell. Instead, he's talking about the same thing under consideration in the rest of the verses there. He's talking about the same thing under consideration in verses 51 through 53. He's talking about the result of becoming a disciple. He's talking about the result of becoming a Christian. He's talking about the process of refining those who make the choice to enlist in his spiritual army. And maybe he's also referring to the judgment of God that will be brought upon those who chose not to make that decision. He's telling us that following him, following him fully, often leads to division. It often leads to separation. It will lead you to being at peace with God, but as a result, it may also lead to some conflict and some strife and to the severing of, of relationships that, that you at one time enjoyed in your life. Jesus says that following him can break up your family. It can break up all these earthly relationships that you may have. It can do that not because Jesus is not the Lord or not because the gospel is not true, but instead it can do that because following him in the gospel forces you and it forces me to make a decision. It forces us to count the cost. 
It forces us to understand that authentic discipleship is not just coming to church every single Sunday. Instead, it's about giving him my life every single day. It's making him Lord. It is giving him preeminence in every aspect of my life. That's what, the, that's what discipleship is about. Discipleship is about making Jesus the Lord of my life every single day. When I do that, it may cost me a lot of relationships. In fact, isn't that exactly what happened with Saul of Tarsus? And that what happened with Saul. Remember after Saul of Tarsus became a Christian? After he was baptized for the remission of his sins and he was added to the Lord's church and he started preaching the gospel, the very people who at one time loved and admired him, the very Jews who at one time held him in high esteem, they started hating him. They started despising him. They even started persecuting him and they tried to kill him on several occasions. Following Jesus led Saul to losing a lot of earthly relationships. And, and that same thing may happen to us. That same thing may happen to you, me and to, and to you. Following Jesus and my life and your life, it, it may cost us our family. It may cost us our parents. It, it may cost us our, our friends, our children, our grandchildren, it may even cause us to be divided from people who live under the same roof as us. I know exactly what that's all about. See, I'm not blessed like many of you, and I say this respectfully. I'm not blessed like many of you to come from second, third, fourth, fifth generational Christianity. You have a lot of Christians in your, in your family. God bless you if you have that. God bless you. I wasn't blessed to come from that. I know what it's like to grow up in a household and you're divided from your family because of religion. You're having debates and arguments every Thanksgiving. A big disagreements because you don't agree on what the truth is concerning the gospel. I know what that's like. It's not a good way to grow up. But I suspect that there are a lot of other people who have it harder than me or, or the way I had it. You know, I can remember several years ago learning about a young lady in the church that I was training with in Texas who after she made the decision to follow Jesus, after she made the decision as a teenager to be baptized for the remission of her sins, her family, her mother and her father literally kicked her out. They kicked her out of the house. They kicked her out on the street. They didn't want anything to do with her anymore because she went against what they believed religiously. They abandoned her and thank God that like what you find in the book of Acts, there was a Christian family in that church who took her in and they helped her get through that rough moment. They gave her shelter, they gave her food, but following Jesus cost that young lady her family. And it may also cost you your family. It may cost you your parents. It may cost you friends that you've had for several decades. It may cost you your boyfriend or your girlfriend. It may cost you invitations to family get-togethers. It may cost you every earthly relationship. 
that you've enjoyed in your life. But you know what Jesus says? That comes with the territory. That comes with the territory of following him. That comes with the territory of making the decision to put him first and truly exalt him as the Lord. Following Jesus may cost us our family. And it will certainly divide us from the world, right? It will divide us from the world. I want you to go in your Bible to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus told us this in Matthew chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 10 or Matthew chapter 5. I'm sorry. Matthew 5 and verse 10. Matthew 5 and verse 10 says, blessed are those. This is a blessing the Lord is announcing. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. When people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad. Rejoice in your persecution for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Notice how Jesus tells us that following him often involves persecution, severe persecution. Severe persecution from people in the world, people who do not respect and like our decision to follow him. That's what Jesus says there. Now go to John chapter 3. I want to show you something here in John 3. In John chapter 3, verse number 19, Jesus says this. John 3, 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the, to the light for fear, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. I want you to ponder on those verses for just a moment or two. You know, it is no big secret that we are currently living in a culture of tolerance, right? We're living in a culture of, of tolerance. We live in a culture where people want us to tolerate any and everything under the sun, don't they? They want us to tolerate same-sex relationships. They want us to tolerate men trying to be women and women trying to be men. They want us to tolerate violence against innocent, pe uh, innocent people and rioting and, and looting and murdering the unborn and premarital sex and, and immodesty. And, and they even want us to tolerate the, the legalization of drugs. I mean, we live in a culture where everything seems to be tolerated. The only exception, though, appears to be us. We're not tolerated. What we stand for, what we believe, what we promote, it's not tolerated. It's not celebrated by the culture, but guess what? That's okay. That's to be expected. Jesus warned us it was going to be this way. Jesus warned us that the choice to follow him includes persecution. It includes division from the world. It includes exposing the evil deeds of this world and having the world hate you because your righteous acts run counter to the sins that are permeating their way through the culture. Following Jesus will divide us from the world. And then third and finally, it would also divide us from false religions. 
In John 14 and verse number 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I want you to look carefully. Look carefully at the Lord's words there. I submit to you that those words are either 100% true or they're 100% false, but they can't be both. They can't be true for me, but false for you. They can't be right today, but wrong tomorrow. No, either they're 100% true or they're not. Now, if they are 100% true, which they are because Jesus was raised from the dead, then you know what that means? That means that everything else that is contrary to this verse is wrong. That means that other religions are wrong. Buddhism is wrong. Mormonism is wrong. Confucianism is wrong. Islam, Calvinism, atheism, agnosticism, any kind of ism you want to come up with this morning, religiously, it's all wrong because it goes against this verse. Here, Jesus is making it clear that if we're going to make it to heaven at all, then it's going to be through him and only through him. It's going to be only through his sacrifice, only through his gospel, only through his resurrection from the dead. Here, Jesus is saying that he is the only way to heaven. And I understand that that claim certainly makes a lot of people mad. It's certainly not politically correct to say. It's certainly not popular or tolerable in many people's minds. But it is the gospel truth. It is something that we must always stand firm on and preach as loud as we can because Jesus said, I didn't come into the world to bring peace, but a sword. I didn't come into the world to bring peace between you and those who oppose me. What I just want you to see this morning is following Jesus. It's not convenient, is it? Do you see that? It's not convenient. It's not about convenience. Instead, it's costly. It's demanding. It's not always an easy thing to do. Sometimes it's going to cost us relationships. Sometimes it's going to bring division in our family. Sometimes it's going to bring about persecution from the very people we love. Following Jesus can bring about a lot of problems in our lives. But you know what? It's still worth it. It's still the best decision that we could ever make in our lives because only when we follow Jesus can we gain access to being at peace with God. And so I want to close this morning by just asking, do you have that peace? Do you have that peace that surpasses all understanding? Do you have that peace that comes from Jesus because you know you're in a right relationship with him? If you don't have that peace, and this morning we're going to sing a song of invitation and give you an opportunity to gain access to that peace. If that means you need to believe in him and repent of your sins and obey his commandment to be baptized, or if you need to repent and be restored back into a relationship with God, whoever needs this morning to gain access to the peace of God, the peace of Jesus, come to the front right now and we'll help you as we stand and we sing.